Hello, hello, hello. This is Monica, and this is Remembering the Misremembered. Autour, innovator, the first tycoon of team, genius, madman, killer. All of these words, at one time or another, have been used to describe the pioneering record producer, record label owner, musician and songwriter Phil Spector. Known for developing the production method called the Wall of Sound, Spector wrote and produced records for some of the greatest artists of the 20th century. He produced hits for girl groups like The Crystals with Darlene Wright, later known as Darlene Love, and The Ronettes, I Can Tina Turner, John Lennon and George Harrison as part of the Beatles and on their solo projects, and the Righteous Brothers. Sonny Bono was mentored by Phil Spector and he and Cher sang background in the studio for many of the artists that Phil produced. He also sprinkled his magic on works for established singers like Laverne Baker and Ruth Brown. His house band, The Wrecking Crew, became famous, sought after industry musicians thanks to Spector featuring them on his recordings. Rolling Stone ranked him number 63 on its list of the greatest artists in history. He was a Grammy winner and a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee. So Phil Spector was quite the influential and prolific music man. Most of his music was categorized as pop, rock, and R&B. As time went on, though, Spector became more and more odd and harder to work with. He eventually retired from society, and in 2009, he was convicted of the 2003 murder of an actress and went on to spend the remainder of his life in prison. He was born December 26, 1939, in the Bronx in New York City. His name at birth was Harvey Philip Spector. His mother was Bertha Spector, and his father was Benjamin Spector. There is some belief that Bertha and Benjamin might have been first cousins. The story of their father's lives were very similar, and both men were Ukrainian Jews with the name Spector, with a K. <clears throat> Benjamin changed the spelling of the surname from Spector with a K to Spector with a C. I have no idea why. Phil was nine years old when tragedy struck the family. Benjamin Spector, an iron worker who struggled with depression, committed suicide via carbon monoxide asphyxiation. He died April 20th, 1949, and the inscription on his tombstone was to know him was to love him. Phil was a frail, sickly child who suffered from asthma as well as a sun allergy. It didn't help that Bertha blamed her son for the suicide of his father, telling him that Ben Spector killed himself because Phil was a bad kid. Phil shot back that the suicide was Bertha's fault for being a bad wife and mother. They were always into it, but the family, Phil, his mother, and his sister Sharon, ended up moving to L.A. They settled in a Jewish area known as Fairfax. Bertha took work as a seamstress. At 13, Spector decided to drop Harvey and started answering to Philip with two L's. Bertha, of course, disregarded this entirely and continued to call her son Harvey. They were still getting into explosive arguments regarding the suicide of Phil's father and other things as well. Those who knew Phil well say that he ended up being the way he was because of the abusive and toxic atmosphere that he had grown up in. 
Children blame themselves for things, so I'm sure that Phil blamed himself for his father's death without his mother reinforcing that blame. It's not known or has never been published why Ben Spector took his life. Bertha hated Phil's female friends. When he visited their homes, she would call them every few minutes, demanding that he return home at once. She also used to chase Phil through the house with a knife. Phil Spector was short and chinless and spoke with a distinct New York accent. He was often the target of high school bullies, but he did manage to form some friendly bonds with musicians. He had learned to play guitar and became a part of a musical trio called the Teddy Bears with Annette Kleinbart and Marshall Lieb. A record producer named Stan Ross, who co-owned Gold Star Studios in Hollywood, taught Spectre the ins and outs of record production. The Teddy Bears recorded a Spectre composition called Don't You Worry My Little Pet before signing a singles deal with Era Records. The next song they recorded was To Know Him Is To Love Him, inspired by the epitaph on the tombstone of Benjamin Spector, Phil's father. The latter song reached number one on Billboard's Hot 100 chart on December 1st, 1958, when Phil was just shy of his 19th birthday. It quickly sold over a million copies by the end of the year. The group did have a few more releases, including I Don't Need You Anymore for Imperial Records, which made it to number 91 on the charts. And their album, The Teddy Bear Sing, didn't chart very well, and the group disbanded sometime in 1959. It was during his time in The Teddy Bears that Phil Spector had a horrifying experience that he never forgot about. They were performing somewhere, and Phil was in the men's room when two men came in and accosted him. He was beaten up and urinated on. After this traumatic experience, Phil started arming himself. He didn't go anywhere without a gun. In 1961, Phil formed Phil Less Records with Lester Seal. In 1962, Phil bought Lester's stock and became the label's sole owner. In 1963, Phil and Annette Marr got married. She was lead singer of the pop trio Spectres Three, which Phil put together and produced. After they married, Phil started a company called Annette Records. The couple also had a son named Damien, but their marriage ended when Phil started an affair with Veronica Ronnie Bennett, lead singer of the Ronettes. Phil Spector was a real musician who could have been a professional jazz artist had he chosen to. He had perfect pitch, also known as absolute pitch, which is defined as the rare ability to identify or recreate a musical note without a reference tone. He would become notorious for stopping recording sessions if a singer was off pitch and putting them back on pitch. He had a strong rhythm and blues soul sensibility. He was known as a great storyteller, an energetic person with a great sense of humor, and he also could exaggerate with his tall tales. He once told a singer that his sister was in an, an asylum and she was the same one in the family. Spectre was an underdog, at least in his mind. He was an angry, bitter man who seemed to use his music to get vengeance on the bullies who had pushed him around. <clears throat> Between 1961 and 1965, Bill Spectre produced 20 top 40 hits. And this wasn't angry music. These were songs mainly led by young female voices, black female voices, singing about the regular topics, Love, Longing, and Heartbreak, The Crystals, She's a Rebel, and Da Do Ron Ron, The Ronettes Be My Baby and Walking in the Rain. 
He went on to work with the Righteous Brothers, producing a number of their songs, including You've Lost That Love and Feeling. In 1966, Tina Turner recorded River Deep Mountain High, the title track for Ike and Tina's album for Phil Less Records. The song was written by Phil, Jeff Berry, and Ellie Greenwich. Phil was very proud of this recording, considering it to be his finest work. The song did well in Europe, but did not succeed in America. Despite his claims of being pleased with the commercial and critical response to the recording, the reaction actually marked the beginning of a mental break for the music titan. He withdrew from the music industry for two years. He went on to produce the Beatles' Let It Be and Long and Winding Road, the second of which angered Paul McCartney because it ruined McCartney's vision for the song. Musically speaking, Phil Spector is most associated with the wall of sound. This production method consisted of something like three drum sets, six guitars, bassists, and percussionists, sometimes strings and woodwinds, all playing together as one with strategically placed microphones. Vocals were often added later. Wall-to-wall sound. A literal wall of sound. With this, Phil Spector created his own music genre. He described it as little symphonies for the kids who responded with enthusiasm. He treated pop R&B soul like classical music. After failing to move Phil Less to A&M Records and releasing another Ike and Tina tune, I'll Never Need More Than This, Spectre began a slow and sporadic retreat from the music industry. He became increasingly erratic and reclusive. In 1968, he married his second wife, the Ronettes lead singer Veronica Ronnie Bennett. She wrote a memoir in 1990 describing how their marriage was basically hell on earth, a captivity that she had to escape from. It was during this time that Spectre worked with the Beatles. Paul McCartney and some critics thought that he had badly botched the long and winding road, but John Lennon and George Harrison went on to work with him on their solo projects. Spectre spent a year as the head of A&R for Apple Records. He produced Try Some, Buy Some, for what was supposed to be a solo album for wife Ronnie. The song only made it to number 77. Spectre was particularly devastated by the public's poor response to George Harrison's All Things Must Pass. It seemed to destroy whatever piece of sanity that he still had. He began to drink heavily. He oversaw Harrison's concert for Bangladesh in New York City, which produced a number one triple album that went on to win Album of the Year at the 1973 Grammys. Spectre thought his work with Lennon and Harrison marked his most creative period. On March 31, 1974, Phil Spectre was nearly killed in a car crash. An attending police officer was ready to declare him dead at the scene except for a faint pulse. The 34-year-old was taken to the UCLA Medical Center. He had serious injuries requiring many hours of surgery, more than 300 facial stitches, and more than 400 stitches to the back of his head. The injuries to Spectre's head is what inspired him to start wearing the crazy wigs that would become his trademark. As a man who never approved of his own looks, he could now justify looking like a clown. He worked sporadically, but he was given to scary behavior. Spectre had become more obsessed with guns. He'd feared for his safety for years ever since he was accosted and peed on in a men's bathroom. By the 1970s, he started carrying guns everywhere and using guns to intimidate the artists that he worked with. At some point, Spectre was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and he drank 
and popped pills copiously. John Lennon, Leonard Cohen, Debbie Harry, the Ramones, and other people told stories of Phil Spector pulling guns on them. Some even accused him of firing a gun in their presence. Latoya Jackson wrote in her autobiography about being held in his musty spiderweb-filled castle before finally being released. This was in the mid-80s when Phil Spector was no longer an active participant in the entertainment industry. During Phil's marriage to Ronnie Spector, he played the role of terrorist and intimidator. He wouldn't allow her to leave the mansion. Sometimes he tied her up. He hid her shoes to keep her from leaving him threatened to kill her and display her remains in a custom-made gold glass-topped casket that he kept in the basement. He did kill her career, or at least put it in a coma. He was surround she was surrounded by barbed wire, bodyguards, guard dogs, and guns in order to keep her imprisoned. She had access to alcohol, though, and became an alcoholic. When they didn't conceive a baby, a mixed-race baby boy named Dante was adopted. By the way, Ronnie is mixed-race for those who don't know. One Christmas, he gifted her with twin boys. Ronnie said that she probably left the house five times during the six-year marriage. She eventually broke out of the prison, escaping barefoot with help from her mother. She left with nothing but little Dante. Phil and Ronnie divorced in 1974. Dante was returned to Phil after Phil threatened to get a hitman to kill Ronnie. Dante went on to say that he and his brothers were held in captivity and locked up in their rooms. They were only let out in order to eat meals and go to school. And he said that they were forced to simulate sex with Phil's girlfriends. In 1982, Phil had twins with Janice Savala, Nicole and Philip Jr. Philip Jr. died of leukemia when he was nine years old. Phil had developed a reputation for pulling guns on people, particularly women, in later years, following them around and stalking them. On February 2nd, 2003, Phil Spector met actress Lana Clarkson at the House of Blues, where she worked to supplement her income when acting gigs dried up. Lana didn't even know who he was. He even asked her, don't you know who I am? When she called him Miss, thinking that the shorty in the elaborate wig was a woman. She got off around 2 in the morning. Spector was still around when she ended her shift, begging her to come to his house for a drink. I don't know how he did it, possibly discreetly at gunpoint, but he convinced her to go to his mansion. She did not leave Spectre's mansion alive. Sometime later, Spectre told his driver, I think I killed somebody. He went on trial for Clarkson's murder in 2007. This resulted in a media circus led by Phil, who would not shut up, and a hung jury mistrial. Spectre was tried again in 2009. This time he was found guilty of using a firearm in the commission of a crime. Taken into immediate custody, he was sentenced to 19 years to life in prison. He had always said that he had no motive to kill Clarkson and he called her death an accidental suicide. He appealed the case three times but was unsuccessful. In 2006, he married a young woman named Rachel. Ten years later, he divorced her from prison. He would have been eligible for parole in 2025, but Phil Spector died from COVID-19 on January 16th, 2021, at the age of 81. Grammy winner, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame warden-like husband, abusive father, and cold-blooded murderer. Some people ask, was Phil Spector a musical genius or a killer? Which part of his legacy will be more dominant? Phil Spector was a musical genius and a convicted murderer. His being a killer doesn't take away his musical genius any more than his musical genius can erase his being a killer. Two or more things can be true at once. 
It seems that nobody who knew Phil Spector was shocked that his erratic behavior eventually led to tragedy. It's sad that nobody could seem to stop it. Nobody could help Phil Spector. This is Remembering the Misremembered. I'm Monica, and I hope to see you soon. Hello, hello, hello. This is Monica, and uh, this is Remembering the Misremembered. I never had a dime to my name before I became a fighter. I never had friends before or respect. Now when people see me on the street, they turn around and say, ain't that Sonny Liston the fighter? That is a direct quote from heavyweight boxing champion, Sonny Liston. On January 5th, 1971, Geraldine Liston returned to her home in Las Vegas after visiting with family for about two weeks. She had not spoken to her husband in about 12 days and actually cut her trip short due to not being able to reach Sonny. I guess she assumed that Sonny was out carousing. The cat was away and the mouse was playing. She was accompanied by the couple's young son, Danny. Actually, Sonny's son with another woman, allegedly. When she pulled up to the house, she noticed something odd. From every window, she could see that all the lights were on in the house. When she entered the house, she noticed a horrible, gag-inducing smell, which she initially thought was spoiled meat coming from the kitchen. She called her husband's name and got no response. Upon entering the bedroom, Geraldine discovered her husband. He was slumped against the bed on his side, dead and rapidly decomposing. There was a broken foot bench on the floor. It looked like he had been undressing for bed when he forcefully fell backward and broke the foot bench. Geraldine called Sonny's lawyer and doctor upon making the gruesome discovery. It took about three hours for the police to be notified. Geraldine had little to say to them and was too distraught to answer their questions. The death was mysterious. So much about Sonny Liston was mysterious. He was actually like a man with no beginning and no clear-cut ending. A complete enigma. Who was Sonny Liston, really? Mike Tyson once said that Sonny Liston made him look like a Boy Scout. In his time, Sonny Liston was the most feared fighter in boxing. He wore an angry, intimidating scowl, and with a single punch, he could break the shoulder. He had 54 fights, 50 wins, 39 KOs, and 4 losses in his career. He was born Charles Liston in Sandslough, Arkansas, into a sharecropping family who formed the land of Morelage Plantation. He was nicknamed Sonny. Sonny's father was an abusive alcoholic named Toby Liston. He was in his mid-40s when Sonny was born. Toby used to beat Sonny endlessly. He beat Sonny so severely that Sonny bore the physical scars for the rest of his life. Sonny's mother, Helen, was close to 30 years younger than Toby. Toby had 13 children with his first wife and 12 children with Helen. Sonny was the 24th of Toby's 25 kids. In their world, children were expected to help out in the fields practically from the time they could walk, so Sonny was working from the time he was very small. Helen got fed up with his way of life and moved with some of her children to St. Louis. This was an unusual move for a woman with lots of children. 
such women usually stayed put and endured whatever it was that they were experiencing, no matter how unpleasant it was. Maybe Toby put her out. I don't know. Otter still is the fact that she didn't take Sonny with her, and he was one of the youngest kids. Maybe Toby wouldn't allow it. Even though a midwife was supposedly quoted at Sonny's birth as prophesying that this baby had the hands of a boxer, no official record of Charles Sonny Liston's birth exists. It's almost like he just appeared. So there are serious questions about when he was born. Possible years of birth include 1919, 1920, and 1921. Some believe he was born between 1929 and 1932. Possible dates of birth are May 8, 1932, the date Sonny always gave when a date of birth was necessary, and July 22, 1930. His family was accounted for in the 1930 census, although he wasn't. But he was accounted for in the 1940 census as about 10 years old, though he was likely quite a bit older than this. In Arkansas, birth certificates were not mandatory until 1965. Another strange detail is the fact that Toby and Helen Liston were small people. Toby was reported to be 5'5", and Helen was 5'2". Sonny would grow to a robust 6'1", with 15 and a half inch hands and an 84 inch reach. With all of these details, or lack of details, it's easy to question whether Sonny's parents were biologically his parents. Is that why his date of birth is such a mystery? Was Sonny a child that the Listons took in whose past they didn't have much information about? They do say that Sonny inherited his head from his mother though. Was Toby his biological father or did Toby think maybe that he wasn't his father? Is that why Toby spent so much time beating Sonny? It all raises lots and lots of questions. At the age of around 13, Sonny sold a bag of pecans in order to take a bus to St. Louis where he hoped to catch up with his mother and siblings and forge a better life for himself. Running away from home was a radical move. St. Louis was the big city and not the country, and he didn't find his mother as easily as he thought he would, but he did find her. The police were of great help to Sonny at this time, and it probably was the only time in his life that they were this helpful to him. Sonny enrolled in school, but his career as a pupil didn't last long. His classmates soon learned that he was illiterate and laughed him out of there, so Sonny didn't fit in with the local intellectuals. He found work in construction, and that led to meeting mobsters. He found work as an underworld enforcer and strike-breaking goon, mugging and robbing his way through St. Louis. He was known as the Yellow Shirt Bandit because of the way he was attired when he committed his crimes. He was the number one Negro, the toughest dude on the mean St. Louis streets. The proceeds he netted were usually about $50, and Sonny was arrested numerous times. He was arrested and convicted in January of 1950, giving his age as 20, even though the St. Louis newspaper reported that he was 22. Liston was sentenced to three five-year terms for robbery to be served concurrently at the Missouri State Penitentiary, a prison that had at different points housed Pretty Boy Floyd and James Earl Ray. It was one of the toughest prisons in America at the time. He started serving his prison term on June 1, 1950. He never complained about the time he spent in prison because he was guaranteed three square meals a day and a place to lay his head each night. Father Alois Stevens was athletic director at Missouri State Penitentiary, and he suggested to Sonny Liston that he try boxing. 
Liston had natural fighting ability and his hands would be known as the epicenter of boxing, particularly his left jab. The endorsement from Father Stevens helped Sonny to get paroled early. He served 28 months. Father Stevens put together a sparring session between Sonny Liston and a professional heavyweight named Thurman Wilson. Two rounds in, Wilson said, get me out of this ring, he's gonna kill me. Released from prison on October 31st, 1952, Liston's amateur boxing career lasted less than one year. By September of the following year, Sonny was boxing professionally. On September 2nd, 1953, Sonny Liston knocked out Don Smith in a single round in St. Louis. After that, he won nine consecutive fights. He beat Marty Marshall in an eight-round decision. In December of 1956, Sonny was arrested for beating up a police officer, stealing his gun and throwing him upside down in a barrel. He served seven months, but he quickly reestablished his career. On September 3, 1957, Sonny married his longtime girlfriend, Geraldine. Geraldine had been married before and she had kids from that marriage, and Sonny had kids from various relationships, but they were not able to have kids together. They ended up adopting a boy from Sweden named Danny. Now, allegedly, Danny was actually Sonny's son with a cocktail waitress. Sonny always had girlfriends, usually showgirls, particularly after they moved to Las Vegas. But Geraldine said that Sonny was a great family man, great with her as well as with the kids they raised together. They settled in Philadelphia. Geraldine also helped Sonny to achieve some literacy, which was important. He needed to be able to read and write a little, even if it was just so that he could sign autographs for his fans. Sonny won 26 consecutive fights, climbing towards the heavyweight championship. He had so much punch and power, and his presence in the ring was the most intimidating in all of boxing. His scowl was almost as backbreaking as his physical punch. He didn't just intimidate opponents, he intimidated members of the press, too. He gave short answers to their questions. Part of the problem was a lack of confidence in his ability to articulate, but he also disliked the press for the same reasons that other people disliked the press. Their tendency to twist his words. They elaborated on his criminal record, which included arrest for beating up cops and impersonating a cop, or driving too slowly or too fast or whatever they wanted to trump up. And they portrayed him as an illiterate beast rather than as a man. The NAACP was against Sonny Liston fighting heavyweight champion Floyd Patterson because they thought that a heavyweight champion should be a quote-unquote good person who was free of a criminal record. But Floyd, who had an upstanding reputation, wanted to fight Sonny. He thought that the man deserved a shot. When the time came, Floyd was understandably and visibly terrified, though. There was a lot of negative press around Sonny at the time. But the two met in the ring on September 25, 1962, and Sonny knocked Patterson out two minutes into the fight, making Sonny Liston heavyweight champ. It marked the first time in history that a heavyweight champ was knocked out in the first round. Those who knew Sonny Liston said that he was actually a nice guy. The trouble was that he didn't really trust a lot of people, so few got close enough to truly know him. He loved children and elderly people and had a special rapport with them. They were not threatening, nor were they judgmental. And he had grown up tough, and his main objection or objective was simply to survive. Sadly, there was no hero's welcome for Sonny Liston when he became heavyweight champ, which really disappointed him. Philadelphia broke his heart. He moved to Denver where the police harassment continued. 
Floyd Patterson wanted a rematch with Sonny. When they met again, Sonny knocked Floyd out again. It was announced that Sonny and Cassius Clay would be fighting each other. The press did what they always do, instigating and giving the future Muhammad Ali an opportunity to do a lot of buffoonery. Cassius called Sonny a big ugly bear while hyping his own beauty. The press had already painted Sonny as a beast and a gorilla, so they ate this up voraciously. There's more, nothing really like one black man berating and making fun of another. When asked if he respected Clay as a fighter, Sonny said that Clay needed to be arrested for impersonating a fighter. So Cassius Clay was absolutely looked at as the underdog going into this fight. Liston was thought of as invincible. On February 25, 1964, the two finally met inside the ring. Liston had gotten more than he bargained for. He had underestimated Clay as a loudmouth buffoon. He allegedly spent the night before drinking and his shoulder was hurt and he had not really trained. Cassius Clay, true to his word, actually came to the fight prepared. There were reports of Sonny cheating by punching Cassius in the eyes with something. For those who aren't aware, Cassius complained that he couldn't see at a certain point in the fight. And there were allegations that Liston had used this tactic in the past. Sonny Liston was declared defeated in the seventh round. Now there's a writer named Paul Gallander who has claimed that uh, Sonny Liston was born in 1919, which would have made him 44 or 45 when he fought. 22-year-old Cassius Clay. Now, I don't know if it's true, obviously, but it really is crazy to think about. He has talked about the many years of Sonny Liston's life that are not accounted for. During that fight, he does look a lot older than his opponent. Sonny Liston trained diligently for the rematch against Muhammad Ali, which was scheduled for November of 1964. But the fight had to be postponed because Ali had a hernia that needed surgery. The fight was rescheduled for May 25th, 1965. There were a lot of people who thought the first fight was a fluke. Sonny was going to show Cassius or Muhammad Ali or whatever his name was what real boxing and a real ass whipping was like this time. When the time came, Sonny took the weirdest, worst looking dive in boxing history. The Louisville lip had barely touched Liston when he went tumbling down and refused to get up. The Phantom Punch. One of the most famous pictures in sports history is of, is of Ali standing over Liston, telling him to get up with Liston refusing. According to Paul Gallander, Sonny Liston took a dive one minute and 45 seconds into the first round because his wife Geraldine and his son Danny were kidnapped by the Nation of Islam. Their lives hung in the balance. Muhammad Ali was unaware of all this at the time of the fight. The second loss to Muhammad Ali marked the beginning of the end for Sonny Liston. He struggled financially and continued to have problems with the law. After moving to Las Vegas, he was often seen in the company of mobsters and women who were not his wife. I think the mob was still using him to strong arm and intimidate. There are rumors that Sonny Liston was dealing drugs and doing drugs. He also drank heavily. He began to dabble in acting. He made appearances on the Monkees and Love American style, but what he really was focused on was a career comeback, which he launched in 1966. In 1968, he won 11 consecutive fights and won three more in 1969. He suffered a brutal loss to Lee Otis Martin, though. The last fight was on June 29, 1970, a 10th round TKO against Chuck Wepner. So he might have still been fighting into his early 50s and fighting well.
On January 5, 1971, Sonny Liston was found dead by his wife, Geraldine. There was allegedly heroin found in the kitchen counter and marijuana found elsewhere in the house. It's widely believed that the real reason it took Geraldine three hours to call the police was that she, along with Sonny's doctor and lawyer, were getting rid of some incriminating evidence. Police claim that Sonny Liston was a known heroin addict, but his friends say that Sonny was so afraid of needles that he wouldn't even get flu shots. I guess he could have snorted it. Police could also easily plant heroin there in order to fit their narrative. Needle marks were found on his body, but somebody close to Sonny said that he had had a minor car accident about a month before he was found dead, and the needle marks were from treatment he had received from that accident. Geraldine Liston shot down rumors that her husband was a dopehead, although she admitted that he sometimes tossed back the occasional drink. At some point, it was decided that Sonny Liston's death was caused by heart failure and lung congestion, but many people believe that Sonny was murdered, possibly by the mob or maybe by the police, although there are claims that many people wanted to see Sonny Liston dead. The date of December 30th, 1970 was decided on as his date, his death date, based on milk delivery sitting at his doorstep and not necessarily the, the condition of his dead body. His death date is not really known, just as his date of birth is not known. Charles Sonny Liston was a mysterious man with no clear beginning and no clear ending. He was buried at Paradise Memorial Gardens in Las Vegas. His simple gravestone reads, Charles Sonny Liston, 1932 to 1970. A man. That's it. What a life. I'm Monica, and this is Remembering the Misremembered, and I hope to see you soon.